Well, welcome to the Encephalitis podcast. Today I'm joined by doctor and writer, Dr. Gavin Francis. Gavin qualified in medicine from Edinburgh in 1999 and then spent 10 years traveling all seven continents. He's the author of an amazing six books of nonfiction, the most recent of which is Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence, which was published earlier this year. His books have been translated into 18 languages, so you have no excuses not to buy them wherever you are in the world. Um, and he's the fellow of the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh and a fellow of the Royal College of General Practitioners. And he lives in Edinburgh, which for those of you that are watching from afar is in Scotland, in the United Kingdom, if it remains the United Kingdom. Um, but he also works as a, as a general practitioner or physician uh, there in Edinburgh. Um, and it is indeed his last book, this book here, that brings us uh, together for this podcast. The concept of recovery and convalescence are things that I'm particularly curious about. And I think that we're going to cover many concepts over the next half an hour that will resonate with many of our listeners. So, Gavin, welcome to the Encephalitis podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to have been asked. Well, I'm going to get straight into the book because I, I genuinely loved this book and I've got so many questions for you and um, and we've only got um, half an hour. So um, let's start, I think, from quite early on in your story. You had mm. two experiences early on in life that appeared, at least from the book, um, related uh, in some way to recovery and rehabilitation. First mm -hmm. of all, you experienced meningitis as a child and the associated mm -hmm. cognitive complications. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then two years later, you were an unlucky child, I have to say, Gavin. <laughs> two years later, you had a bicycle accident resulting in you having to learn to walk again. And I was curious to hear a little bit more about these experiences and what you experienced with this contrast between the physical physical rehabilitation being able to see mm -hmm. something that's broken and not working and perhaps what we can best describe as the, the more hidden um, disabilities of uh, or experiences of something like meningitis mm. yes no thanks for the question Eva um so yes when I broke my leg I was 12 years old I fell off my bicycle I splintered a bit of my tibial plateau and um, I had to have surgery to put it back in place. And then my leg was immobilized in a plaster cast for um, a couple of months. Um, and you can imagine, you know, having your leg immobilized for a couple of months is challenging for any 12 year old. And I had a very difficult summer that year. But really what struck me about the process of recovery and convalescence was that that journey really only began once the plaster cast was removed. And I could see my leg was really wasted in comparison to the other one. My bulk of my thigh muscles had disappeared. They melted away. And the, the hairs on my legs had all grown very, very thick and dark. And the skin was like as white as bone. And um, I couldn't walk on it, of course. It was so weak. It wobbled and um, it gave way. And I, I, I found it really difficult to get back up to speed. But that was at a point at which the orthopedic surgeons thought I was healed. So the orthopedic surgeons were happy with me, discharged me, and yet I couldn't walk. And that process of convalescence was really striking because you could see my recovery in the bulk of my thigh. You could see it in the color of my skin, wearing shorts. Um, you could see my, my sort of return to health very, very visibly. But as I also described, having recovering from something like meningitis is so different because you look 
to all intents and purposes as if you're well. You look uh, fine to everybody who's around you, but actually you have debilitating fatigue, you have headaches, you have difficulty concentrating, brain fog. And I suppose that built in then at the very earliest uh, stages of my life was this appreciation that there's different kinds of convalescence and that every, every person and every condition um, is really unique in how recovery happens and, and that we have to make space in the medical profession for that and to understand that. So yeah, that was a very kind of vivid example from early in my life. And I wonder if it influenced my decision to become a doctor, I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I was curious um, about that as well. And I think those are things that, that many of the um, listeners and viewers that have been affected by encephalitis will really resonate with this, mm. you know, this uh, hidden nature of, of brain injury. And, and, you know, when something goes wrong with the brain, the fact that other people can't see it. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, um, I remember reading a quote, actually, um, it was from somewhere rather random, like the National Union of Journalists or something, but they said that the, the foremost um, uh, type of discrimination is that of not being believed. And, and I think that's um, another thing that people with these hidden disabilities are often, you know, well, you're a malingerer six months ago. Come on, you know, mm -hmm. why haven't you um, sorted yourself out? Mm -hmm. but you touch upon the concept of rehabilitation more broadly quite early on in the book where you make mm -hmm. it clear that rehabilitation is to make someone as fit as they can be, I think is the term that you used. Mm -hmm. And I found that really interesting because I think a lot of patients who go into rehabilitation think that the outcome of rehabilitation will be them returning to the way that they were before. And we mm -hmm. know that that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Can you say a bit more around that? Yes, um, of course, the, the, people can feel an awful lot of pressure to recover to the extent uh, that the, the, the level of health or the level of fitness or the level of social engagement or the level that they were operating at professionally, they can feel a lot of pressure to try and return to that. And I think it's really unhelpful, actually. It's a really unhelpful perspective. Um, our bodies are changing all the time, even without injury or without an infection like encephalitis. Our bodies are changing and aging and what we can expect of them changes as we get older. And um, the effects of both injury and of this kind of infection can be so enduring and so deep-seated that I always think it's much, much better to think in terms of what potentials we have in our recovery. And um, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, book by a rehab doctor called Christopher Ward. Uh, Chris Ward is... Um, wrote a book called Between Sickness and Health. And in it, he describes his perspective in rehab medicine as being one of encouraging possibilitation rather than rehabilitation, which is a much, much more helpful way of thinking about it. Do you know, this idea that health is an extreme to be reached and that, that it's like at the top of this ladder that we all have to try and climb up to this ladder to reach health, um, I think is a profoundly unhelpful one. And it's much more in keeping with my experience as a GP um, helping patients over the years to think of health as a balance between extremes. And, and having and suffering a severe illness or injury um, just means that we have to find a new balance. We have to find a new balance of what's possible and we have to find a new kind of equilibrium um, that, that we're capable of sustaining. So yes, let's jettison these old ideas of uh, 
of rehabilitation being about some return to, 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 to an impossible perfection and think about it instead as about finding a new balance and learning to, to live with your body the way it is now. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a really refreshing um, perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, many years ago, I, I used to go into brain, uh, brain injury rehabilitation units um, around the country and you'd often, you know, you'd have the um, the kitchen and there'd be some, I don't know, you know, 20 stone bruiser who'd sustained a punch in the head down the pub and, you know, teaching him how to make a cup of tea and, and, and um, I don't know, make fairy cakes or something. And what, and it struck me that what we should really have been doing to help with his rehabilitation was helping him play darts again and, and, you know, work mm -hmm. out where his new norm was in terms of how many pints he was going to have down the pub with his mates or something it all it always felt a bit you know mm -hmm. off center really that we were putting people into the box of rehabilitation rather than I think things are, are much better now I think um, uh, there's more kind of transitional and community rehabilitation that does look at that but but that mm -hmm. used to strike me um, 20 years ago but you also use a term in the book um, which I absolutely loved called no hierarchy to suffering mm. um, and I think this is something that really resonates uh, with myself and the team at the Encephalitis Society who, who try you know terribly hard on a daily basis to help people around the world that have been affected by encephalitis mm -hmm. um, but of course you can't always help everybody but I think we're always struck with how profoundly different people's experiences um, and approaches to illness can be can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit more about about that and 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 this no hierarchy to suffering that you talked about yeah sure so it's um hmm when you're at work as a GP, you meet people in all kinds of situations all the time uh, with the most trivial of health conditions and the most profound, life-changing, debilitating, disabling um, of conditions and everywhere on the spectrum in between. And what strikes you, or what strikes me certainly again and again, is that it is impossible to predict with different individuals how they're going to respond to these kind of situations. So, you know, I've met people over the course of my career who've been utterly devastated in terms of their mental health and their resilience by the breakup of a love affair, for example. I've met other people who've taken the most disabling strokes or um, rapidly progressive Parkinson's disease or some other condition that, that objectively looks much, much more serious or life-limiting. I've seen people take those kind of diagnoses in their stride. And so I've learned over the years, I think, never to expect there to be some kind of objective scale of who's deserving of compassion or pity or help uh, than others. Everybody's got a different um, way of coming to terms with, with what's afflicted them. And everybody's got a different way of approaching um, their own strengths and their own path back to recovery. And I see my job as a doctor very much as a kind of midwife of change. So you're supposed to really help people change back towards the best version of themselves that they can be. And for some people, as I said, that can be really over years helping them overcome something that to another person might seem quite trivial. Um, you also see over the course of my career, I see that, that sometimes the most difficult or debilitating problems are not the ones that take the most 
time in clinic or they take the most work in terms of, of recovery. Sometimes it's the, again, something quite trivial uh, from the outside, like uh, tennis elbow, say, can be utterly debilitating and life-changing for somebody who is living independently and suddenly is unable to, unable to open a jar, they're unable uh, to turn the keys they're in their door. The, what from the outside might look like a trivial thing is not actually trivial at all. And so I'm always very careful now to, when people tell me what's suffering them, I say, how does that affect you? And that gives you an really interesting insight into the effect of even apparently or objectively quite trivial complaints can be really quite devastating to different people. Yeah, I think I think that's that's really uh, really important. I know in our work often uh, you talked about being discharged, um, you know, uh, and not being able to walk. And and I know mm -hmm. quite often sometimes our people are discharged, and um, in the clinical world, it's it's like well, you know, they've um, they've got mild difficulties or moderate difficulties or or um, profound mm -hmm. difficulties, and actually some of the people with the most profound difficulties are not the ones who are struggling the most because actually yeah. their levels of awareness often are not very high in terms of um, the difficulties that they're facing. Quite yeah. often that's more of a problem for the family members, but, but often those that are struggling the most are those that clinically would be considered mild in terms of their, their outcome. Mm -hmm. but, but on a day-to-day -day basis, their, their emotion, their psychology, their sense of self has been so profoundly changed that they're really struggling mm -hmm. on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think that's something that really resonates with us. Yeah, I can imagine if you're, um, if you're being classified by the rehab unit as mild, but if you're um, before your encephalitis, your function was at a very high intellectual level or you had a very demanding professional job, the inability to go back to that job might be utterly devastating. Yeah. Whereas even somebody with moderate um, conditions, if they're able to go back to live largely the life they were living before, they might feel quite, um, do you know, that they're adjusting quite well to their illness. Yeah. You moving on to this topic of, of convalescence, um, I am sadly old enough to remember when we had convalescent homes available um, in, in the UK and indeed um, cottage hospitals as well. Mm -hmm. um, I was uh, raised in Falmouth in Cornwall and we had a little cottage hospital down uh, just down the road where this is where people who um, often went after being very poorly in hospital, that's where they'd go for their recovery, their rehabilitation, mm -hmm. and they'd spend time uh, recuperating. Um, I vaguely remember my dad having a, a DVT. He was a big drinker. He was an alcoholic. He had a DVT, but I remember him going from hospital into a convalescent home and, and mm -hmm. me thinking, oh, that's a nice thing. You know, someone's taking care of him. Um, I, under the Thatcher government, I think most of these were culled, except for the hospice movement, mm -hmm. um, which you talk a little bit about in the book. But I was really surprised to learn from your book, the number of hospital beds in the United Kingdom um, has halved since 1988 from 300,000 mm -hmm. to 150,000. How can we possibly justify the loss of so many acute beds and also places um, that people go to recover and recuperate? How, how, you know, we're constantly talking about the NHS and bed blocking. I mean, mm -hmm. surely, I mean, it it's, can't just be me that this is obvious to. No, it's purely it's purely financial and it's quite cynical and um, political shifts, really. It's been justified again and again by um, political elites because 
it's been argued that advances in, for example, keyhole surgery and advances in improvements in community services make it much, much uh, easier now than it was in 1980, say, to discharge people after surgery into a supportive environment at home. But of course, those of us who work in the community uh, rather than hospital know that that is completely untrue. Actually, um, we have seen these constant problems you referred to there of, of so-called bed blocking, um, which actually just means that there is inadequate services in the community to allow a patient to safely get home. So um, we have a government that stripped out finance from social care. Um, we have a government that is obsessed with um, tabloid-friendly medical issues, like, for example, chemotherapy or fancy surgical procedures. And you never see a front page of the tabloid screaming about the diminution of community physiotherapy or the diminution of community mental health. But these are the things that allow people to get home safely. And they also, um, if you're struggling in the community with very severe mental health problems, the burden of suffering and unhappiness in the community is huge. But you're never going, you're, 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 the CEO of your health board is never going to find out about it. It's never going to make the headlines the way that a queue of ambulances outside A&E make the headlines. But this constant stripping of capacity for inpatient care has enormous consequences in terms of the suffering it causes out there in the community and the difficulties it introduces into the jobs of GPs and district nurses like, uh, like myself who are trying to manage these patients in the community, patients that 30 years ago would always have been managed in hospital. And I am daily in my work faced with the problem of somebody who is quite frail, quite isolated, not managing at home, elderly, has multiple medical difficulties that 30 or 40 years ago would always have been managed in hospital. And yet there are no beds for me to admit that patient to, even if they just needed something like a cottage hospital bed um, for a couple of nights. And it's something um, that's very starkly obvious to me because I move between um, a city practice where I work in the centre of Edinburgh and also I work sometimes in the small islands of Orkney or um, the Hebrides in Scotland. And these much smaller communities do still have community hospitals and because they have to, because the ferries don't run all the time. And so you need somewhere to put the patient if you're on an island. And the transformation of the way it makes you be able to practice medicine is wonderful when you do have something like an intermediate care bed that you can admit somebody to. Um, so how you asked me how it's justified, I don't think it can be justified. It can be justified because again and again, um, unfortunately, our political elites are um, unwilling to be honest with the electorate about how much an adequately funded NHS would cost, and they're unwilling um, to then translate that into the requisite taxation changes that would require it. So whenever election time comes around, all the political parties of every colour are always saying how important the NHS is to them. But then once the election is out the way, they get on with stripping it in the most um, uh, tabloid friendly way that they can without causing too much of a eruption. And that's why we've seen such a, um, for me, really quite terrible diminution in the community services that I have access to as a GP. 
Well, who knew that I was going to be politically affiliated um, uh, with your views as, as well as um, some of your views uh, that you share in the book. But you also talk about um, in the book um, that it's impossible. So this is in a similar vein, that it's impossible for you as a doctor to be able to arrange admission to a psychiatric or mental health hospital on, on, in, on humanitarian grounds. And by that, I think you, you, you mean to ease someone's suffering. Um, and the only way that you can help these patients into these hospitals is on the grounds of safety. And I'm guessing you mean by that, that they're either a danger to themselves or to other people. It mm -hmm. seems astonishing that we can't take preventative action as people's situations might be escalating, that we have to let them get into crisis mm -hmm. before we can um, intervene. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we do have this system, certainly in the area where I work, we have a system um, of community mental health care called the rapid response team. And so in a, an ideal world, if somebody is um, undergoing a major crisis, a psychotic illness, say, or they've become suicidally depressed and made an attempt on their own life, I can make phone calls and that can have um, this rapid response team, which consists of a psychiatrist and um, community psychiatric nurses, um, engage very rapidly with that patient within the, the same day or within or by the next day. Of course, these are people who will come and chat to the patient and prescribe medication in their own home. Now, you know, we seem to have lost something um, when we jettisoned the, the old-fashioned term um, asylum, and because, of course, the word asylum means place of safety. And it's got a terrible name to it now because we think of these Victorian asylums where people were locked up without adequate cause and essentially the key was thrown away and there were no adequate really supportive services or care given to them. But the word asylum should mean a place of safety. And, and it's really tragic to me that if somebody is in acute distress, they're in a home situation that's possibly either caused or majorly contributed to that distress, either a domestic situation or even an environmental situation. There's lots of triggers all around them in that home. And what I really need to do is get that patient to a place of safety. So, but I can't do that. What I can do is phone up the rapid response team and they'll come around and chat to them in their own sofa. So um, I, the only way I can get somebody admitted to psychiatric hospital is if they're actively suicidal or they're actively psychotic and we're worried that they're going to attack somebody or they're going to drive their car into a wall or they're going to do something which is, is um, a danger to someone else. And I think it's really tragic. I would love to have the capacity available within the mental health services that I could admit somebody who was just really, really deep in suffering, either through despair or through psychosis, but wasn't a danger to themselves, but still needed a place of safety to be in order to heal or in order to, to get perspective. But unfortunately, that's not available in the mental health um, services as they're presented to me as a GP. Mm. Yeah, and I'm sure that that would be a much more cost-effective way of, um, you know, treating patients rather than all the economic costs associated with people being in this, these kind of chaotic crises. Mm. Um, yeah, I would think so too. I would hope so too. But I worry that even if it wasn't economically better to do that, even if it did cost more to have a place of safety for people, then I still think we should do it because it's about the relief of suffering. And what is the purpose of the NHS? What is the purpose of medicine? 
other than to ease suffering. You know, the word patient means sufferer. And so if we can't um, build ourselves a system dedicated to easing suffering, then we're just building a system that's about firefighting. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's not a system that's particularly pleasant to work in and it's not a system that's pleasant for, for the patient to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sticking plasters don't always help the wounds to heal, do they? Mm. You know, um, you talk about the practice of medicine and perhaps what the ideal doctor might look like. So I was in, I was intrigued. I thought, mm. oh, is is the one? Um, uh, and and what might they look like? I have to say, I've I've just recently found a doctor who who I do think is my ideal doctor, and I'm very relieved. Mm. Um, uh, the, the, the surgery that, that I go to, I can be I can be in quite a good state of mind when I go there. And then um, I become quite angry before I've even seen the doctor because it's just littered with with uh, notices everywhere um, that just seem to fuel an ire in me because it, it's um, don't lean over the counter. And it's um, they've got posters up saying you've got two options today. You can have. You can have an appointment with with the GP or the police. And and I'm reading all of this and it's like, really? I was fine when I walked in, but but now I'm kind of feeling a bit uh, a bit angry. But but this brings me to my point, which is about which is something that I do lecture about, which is um, about narrative medicine. And and it is a bit of a passion of mine. And by narrative medicine, I mean. Um, that by listening, we try to gain a deeper understanding um, of people's experiences and the emotions that are likely to have influenced their their health. Um, uh, there's a particular um, uh, person called Rita Sharon uh, over in the United States whose work I particularly like around this, if anybody wants to Google it and, and hear a bit more. But what do you think doctors can learn um, or achieve by practicing a, a narrative medicine approach with their, with their patients? Mm. Um, my understanding of it too is that narrative medicine is about understanding the place of the suffering or the illness in the patient's life and the story of their life and trying to find out more about that story. And it's um, I alluded to earlier when I talked about that question of saying, well, so how does this affect you in your daily life? What difference does it make? Quite often, it's really useful to ask a patient to talk through a normal day for you and tell you what do they do after they get up and then what do they do and then what do you do and then what do you do. Um, and so my own view of narrative medicine is that it's just good medicine. You know, I don't think we need a special word for it. I would rather we didn't have a special word for it. And sadly, we we often don't have enough time in the NHS that I practice in just because um, it's optimised for maximum value for money for the taxpayer. And so that means about 2,000 patients for every full-time GP. Um, in some places where it's very pressurised, it goes as high as 2,500 patients per GP, which translates roughly as about 10-minute appointments. And it's very difficult to get a proper grasp of... Um, of, of the story of a patient's life and, and the place of their illness within it in the space of 10 minutes. But, but you know, it's good medicine to try. It makes the medicine so much more satisfying to practice and it's actually far more effective as well. Um, so yeah, I'm all for it, I'm all for encouraging it. And um, there's a wonderful um, perspective on GP consultations, which is that um, within every consultation, you should try to find some point of connection with the patient outside 
the bounds of the consultations, whether that's talking about their pets or whether that's talking about where they're going on holiday or whether that's talking about their hobbies or whether that's talking about what they had for dinner last night, you know, to, to create a space where you can connect as human beings that isn't just in a direct doctor-patient um, transaction uh, really enriches the consultation. And, and when you make an effort, even when time is pressured to do that, it's quite remarkable how many other things and stories and reflections and even treatment pathways end up unfolding um, from making that space. So um, the short answer is, yes, I think it's a good thing, but I'm not sure we really need a special name for it. It should just be called good medicine. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a fair point. Mm. Um, maybe because that's another lost art that we have found a, a name for it now. Um, mm. I, I don't know. Um, bringing us back again uh, for the third time um, in this podcast to, to this um, no hierarchy of suffering. Mm. You described a scenario in the book where you telephone a patient, he's out cycling um, and you're giving him a diagnosis of I think it was anemia. Mm -hmm. um, and he suddenly on the phone to you became quite uh, breathless, quite unwell. Um, and I'd like to talk a little bit for a minute about diagnoses. When I first started working in this field, I remember a doctor asking me, well, is a diagnosis important, Ava? And I went, well, of course it is. Of course they want to know what's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. um, um, and do you know what? I've had some life experiences since then where I'm not sure. I mean, I've lost a couple of people mm -hmm. uh, close to me over the last few years. Many, many of us have. But it almost felt like when they got their diagnosis, something changed and and their trajectory changed. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know. I'm not I'm not so sure that, that people always do want a diagnosis or, or that it's a good thing. I don't know. What are your thoughts around that? Um, yeah, the, the words that we give our suffering and the words that we give ailments are really powerful, aren't they? They're kind of like magic spells, you know, and, um, and, and I don't think there's an easy answer to, to that, Eva. I think it depends so much not only on the diagnosis, but also it depends so much on the individual. And then it depends again on the phase of the life that the individual is in. Um, so that was an example of somebody who didn't know a bit about medicine. And so to be told that they were profoundly anemic, that meant something to that patient. And they suddenly, every kind of little catch in your breath that you feel when you exert yourself anyway, became freighted with all these anxieties because of the knowledge of how profoundly anemic they really were. And um, it, it's a really vivid reminder for me that, that what's so important in illness is our understandings of illness and our beliefs about illness. And they massively color and filter our experience of our bodies. So if you believe that you've got a minor self-limiting condition, you'll just push yourself and push through all kinds of things. But if somebody tells you that you're breathless because you've got a tumor in your lung, that breathlessness means something very different to you every time you feel it. So you might have just been ascribing your breathlessness, for example, to the fact that you'd had a runny nose and a cold last week. And then someone tells you, no, actually, it's because your lung capacity is halved. That, 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 that knowledge profoundly alters the, your interpretation of your experience of breathlessness. And that goes for everything. It goes for people who have sciatica, who characterize their sciatic pain just as a, a, if you say, oh, I've just got a trapped nerve, they might sort of 
um, shrug and move on from that and, and try to mobilize their back. But if you tell them, oh, well, you've slipped a disc and it's pressing on your spinal cord, people are paralyzed with fear and scared to move. So how you characterize an illness um, has a huge impact on, on, on not just recovery, but also how it's experienced. So um, going back to your question of is diagnosis a good thing or is it not? I think it varies very much in the diagnosis. Some diagnostic categories are pretty hazy, to be honest. They're not very good. There's a whole load of immunological diagnoses that we don't really understand very well. You know, one end of the spectrum, we've got quite obvious ones like rheumatoid arthritis, say, or ulcerative colitis that we understand a little bit about, and we understand that the immune system is, is, is attacking the body in some way. But then there's, there's other kinds of, um, of autoimmune conditions like, um, for example, demyelination that we don't really understand very well. And sometimes it's better not to give a firm diagnosis. If you tell somebody who's had an episode of demyelination, oh, you've got multiple sclerosis, that's a profound life altering diagnosis to give somebody, but actually it might have just been a one-off. It might never happen again. And so you have to be very, very careful in throwing around words like that. And my own experience is it's, it's quite a good idea just to gauge very gently, testing the water, how much a particular patient wants to know. And that, of course, will vary depending on what the diagnosis is. Sometimes you've got an obligation to tell people, even if they don't want to hear it. Um, but in that situation, I would be extremely, extremely careful. And I would probably work up to it over several conversations. And of course, sometimes there isn't always a diagnosis. I, th mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, the media often leaves us to believe, you know, people go into hospital and there's always a diagnosis. This is what's wrong with you. And of course, we know that isn't always the case. And that can be profoundly frustrating for patients and caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I, I would hate to give the impression that, that medicine has all the answers. Definitely doesn't have all the answers. It has a lot of answers and we're very, very good at um, uh, sort of picking out and identifying particularly nasty, progressive, life-threatening diagnoses. But there's a massive uh, a swathe of kind of gray, hazy, fuzzy diagnoses that people move in and out of through their life that, were, that, that, that are far more indistinct. And um, as a GP, you certainly make your peace with that very early. And it can be quite difficult sometimes to prepare some patients with black and white thinking um, for that reality. Yeah, I'm one of those black and white people, I'm afraid. But uh, <laughs> um, you again, through, you know, throughout the book, you return time and again to the concept of and we've, we've touched upon it already, how people understand and make sense of their illness experience. Sometimes that's positively, sometimes that's negatively. But you going back to some of your patients, you recounted this story of two men who suffered tra traumatic near death experiences, but mm. who interpreted and acted upon those experiences in profoundly different ways. Mm. And I think at the end of chapter 10, you say that accepting that different stories are even possible and can and that story, people's stories can be rewritten is a powerful step in the right direction. And I think by that you meant in the direction of recovery. Can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit more um, about that? Mm, well, that, that particular example is the story of two men who both collapsed with um, heart trouble, with a heart arrhythmia. And had um, 
defibrillator shocks to the heart, which brought them back to life. And um, both of whom then had implantable defibrillators put into their hearts so that, that, that if the if, if the fibrillation ever happened again, they would be shocked back out of it automatically. And, and I had one patient who just felt like this was a magnificent sort of restoration to life. He felt utterly rejuvenated and um, he thought, I should be dead. I was dead. I was lying there in the car park dead. And these paramedics brought me back to life and what a wonderful life it is. And uh, spent time, um, you know, eating fine food and going on holidays and, and, and loving time with his grandchildren. And I had another patient that had almost exactly the same experience, but instead of being rejuvenated by it, was, was actually was mortified by it. And suddenly the awareness of the vulnerability and the fragility of life was profoundly upsetting and became very, very anxious, scared to go out, scared to be left alone, just because that experience of, of knowing that your heart could stop um, was was so terrifying and i thought that was really amazingly uh good reminder as gps that the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we understand and the way we interpret the objective events of our lives have have these huge um influences on the way we experience our life and on how happy we feel and on our own perspective and what's happened to us and our own hopes for the future and so um it, it reminded me to try and not only understand the story of my patient, where they're coming from, but also to try and nudge people where I can in the right direction. And by right direction, I mean in the direction of, of more flourishing, more happiness, more contentment with your situation, even if it's limited. For example, now you've got a def implanted uh, defibrillator, now that you've got this heart vulnerability that you didn't have before, but look at all these possibilities that are now open to you that wouldn't have been open to you even 30, 40 years ago before such defibrillators existed. Um, so that, that was a really good reminder for me of the importance of stories. Absolutely. And I, I always hope if anything um, were to happen to me that I'd be like that first gentleman, but I, I don't know. You, you just don't know, do you? Because you, yeah. you can always think of these things and think, well, you know, and we judge all the time. Like, well, if that was me, I'd do this. And, and you know, a couple of the times that, that things have happened to me, I've reacted completely differently to the way that I said that I would have done, mm. which was, you know, a huge surprise. Um, but we're nearing the end of the podcast, Gavin, um, before mm -hmm. I finish. And I am going to finish with some what I, I took away, some wise words from your book. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm going to lighten our mood a little because we've been talking about some really serious things here. Health, illness, politics, the government, God help us. Um, and so this is your little desert island disc moment, okay. um, which I love doing with people. Um, if you hadn't have been a doctor, what would you have been? Um, I think I probably would have been a geographer. I like making maps. I like making sense of the world through maps. And yeah. um, if I could have got into that, then I think I would have done it. Um, not just physical geography, but social geography too. Mapping the way human communities move and live on the land. Yeah. Okay. Hence all the maps that we can see behind yeah, you. Yeah, I love those. Yeah. Oh. Um, okay. Favorite book and why? Oh, you know, that's really, for a writer, that's almost impossibly difficult question, I think. Um, because they, it changes all the time, depending on what my current preoccupations are. But um, 
probably at the moment I'm thinking a lot about medicine and I keep going back and back and back to a wonderful book from the 60s by John Berger about general practice called A Fortunate Man. So it's a book, uh, John Berger um, is sadly dead now. He was an art critic, an art writer who spent um, six weeks living with a GP and sitting in on every consultation and doing every home visit, every emergency call with the GP in the late 60s. And to have somebody so trained in acute observation watch the process of GP consultations and then write about them, not as a fellow clinician or not as a critic, but as, as somebody who appreciates art is really illuminating. So that would be my vote, A Fortunate Man by John Berger. Oh, okay. I'm going to look that up. Um, yesterday, uh, the team and I, um, we do something once in a while called Neuro Cinema, where we we all come together as a team. We bring food and uh, we watch a, a movie um, that's usually something neurologically related because of the work that we do. And yesterday we watched um, Oliver Sacks, His Own Life. I don't know if you've seen that yet. So. No, not yet. No. I, I genuinely recommend it to, to you and any of the listeners. It was oh, really yeah, I love Oliver Sacks, yeah. really moving couple of hours. Um, mm. And yeah, again, I mean, I had the fortune of working with him very briefly um, when he came over to the UK um, many, many years ago. Um, but I think he's hugely influenced my interest in patient narratives and neurology mm. and all of those things but anyway so I'm putting that out there for anybody who wants to do something oh, thank you over the weekend um but your question's not yet finished favorite oh. singer or band oh again varies all the time um at the moment I'm listening to a lot of uh, uh King Creosote he's uh, um, uh, a singer-songwriter from uh, Fife in Scotland uh, wonderful, very kind of beautiful, uh, quite sometimes quite melancholy, um, but a really elegant songwriter. So yeah, King Creosote. Okay, I'm gonna. That's another thing for me to Google this weekend. Not heard of him. Mm-hmm. And finally, last meal if you had to choose one. Uh, I think I'd like uh, takeaway pizza on the harbour with my kids. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. How many kids have you got? Three. Three. Okay. Yeah. Um, right. Well, I said I was going to finish up with some wise words from your book. I think there's a lot of wise words um, in it, but mm-hmm. uh, some of a couple of my favourites. Um, no one is getting any younger, and all of us would do well to remember that health can never be a final destination, but a balance between extremes, different for everyone. And whether we reach it or not depends on our goals and priorities as much as it depends on anatomy and physiology. Mm. I really liked that. And and the the second one was, don't expect all doctors and nurses to be the same. It's good that they're different. They're fallible individuals and are usually trying their best. And for that, we thank you all, um, Gavin. We've covered a huge amount. We're extremely grateful to you for taking the time to chat with us. So, so thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Anne. Um, 
The Encephalitis Society remains at your service. And so if you need any support or information, our teams, of course, are always there for you. Go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online with any of the team. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. And as always, if you can support our life-saving work, we'd be extremely grateful. So please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. And don't forget, finally, I mustn't forget, buy the book. It's available from most online retailers if you simply go Google it, Recovery, The Lost Art of Convalescence by Gavin Francis. And I genuinely look viewers you can see all my notes here I haven't been able to talk to him about all of these things that I've flagged up but there's a lot in it it's really rich for such a tiny little book it won't take you very long to read it so please do go and buy it. Thank you everybody. Yeah thank you very much for having me on your program. You're so welcome. Mm-hmm.